0: All right, I think we're going to get started. Um, I'm Cameron Cole. Next to me is Jack Fitzpatrick, pageant wave. Um, Jack is, uh, he just finished his senior year at Mountain Brook. He's going to be a a freshman at the Citadel next year. And he has led Bible studies for two years for us, for junior high students. Isn't that correct?
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's right. He and I led one together. He's a a really good Bible teacher. So... um, he and I are going to lead this uh, class today on Jesus in the Old Testament. I- I'm going to pray for us first. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless this time. I pray that your Holy Spirit um, would supply grace for us. I pray that this time would be helpful. I pray that it would give us hope, comfort, uh, peace, and joy above all things. Lord, we pray that this time would glorify the name of Jesus and uh, ask these prayers in-, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Someone Amen. might close the door. Thanks. Um, so, the, uh, the purpose of this class uh, is, this is Jesus in the Old Testament. This is uh, part one of a two-part installment. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the reason, that we have different reasons for why we're teaching this, but part of the reason is just so that you will get excited, people get more excited about the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. Um, I, uh, I read, I would say the majority of my reading is out of the Old Testament. And a lot of times people have uh, false notions that, Oh well, because Jesus has come, the Old Testament is less relevant. Or oh, there's that Old Testament God, which that's just so silly. But um, there, you know, it's the same God throughout all of throughout all of history, and it's the same gospel both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. And uh, we but we have to dig a little deeper in the Old Testament to find it. And so what we're going to be talking about here is this week is going to be Jesus in the Old Testament. We're going to be about how looking at how you can explicitly see Jesus um, in the OT. Um, Next week will be the gospel in the Old Testament, or grace in the Old Testament, and we'll look at how you can find the dynamics of the gospel, um, our need for grace, and God's provision of grace um, in the most obscure and seemingly non-gospel-oriented passages. And so that's what we're going. And you know, um, you know, but I, I, part of the reason I want people to be excited about the Old Testament is because you know, your New Testament's like that thick, right? I mean, you can carry your New Testament like a little Bible in your in Your pocket, Old Testament is that thick. There's so much gold, and uh, and you know, to forsake all that gold. That, that's that, that's awful. Um, but also too, another thing is uh, for me when I see the gospel in the Old Testament, it continues to encourage me that the, that this message is true. Like that this 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 is not just like some. There, certainly the new there there is a new covenant in the New Testament, and the gospel is is proclaimed in a more explicitful way. Um, but to see that gospel message true throughout all of time in history is extremely encouraging to me. Um, it's, it validates the gospel that we know through Christ. So, anywho, um, Jack, you want to go from there?
2: Um, so, pe- who here is kind of like Cameron and like really likes the Old Testament or like reads it more than the New Testament? Just about. Um, who here's not like that? Who here um, just kind of stays away from Old Testament a little bit? Um, no shame, no shame. Um, what are what are some things that the you Old Testament nerds um, like about the Old Testament? Okay. Uh, Trisha,
0: Trisha, you're—we know we know that you're both an Old Testament fan and a nerd. So come on, tell us something you like about the Old Testament. I love the narrative, the
1: complete story, and, and how you know it keeps repeating um, itself—that gotcha. same cycle over and over again. Mm-hmm.
2: Those of you who don't um, necessarily read it a whole lot, what are some of y'all's? Um, why do you think that is? Just it being kind of boring, or irre- or do you see it as irrelevant or anything? I just
1: think it harder to read. There's more um, names and places
2: and sometimes scary stuff. I'm going pretty elementary here. But um, New Testament is
1: just more
2: Mm understandable. Yeah, it could definitely be intimidating, especially because it's so big and whatnot.
1: Jack, is your question about why do
2: we avoid it? Is that sort of the root of your question? I guess guess so. so.
1: Well,
3: I avoided it for about 40 years because of the fear. The fear that's
1: You God was really
3: good at killing his enemies in the Old Testament. Out, you know, the enemy or, the enemy. or the enemies of Israel, I guess. So, you know, I've heard other people say I felt the same way. It's just frightening. Mm-hmm. Because I think it makes us look at ourselves
2: differently. That's interesting. I don't
1: know. I think there's certain parts of the Old Testament that are very um, I'm very able to identify with, like the Psalms. I just, I don't find those intimidating mm-hmm. at all. I think they're great, because I find myself in there all the time. Mm-hmm. But other parts, I don't know. It's funny, I was telling Tawana, my daughter, loves the stories. She just, she's 11, and she just loves this, to read the same stories over and over and over again. And actually prefers those to New Testament. It's kind of interesting, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's very rich. Oh, I'm reading a book. Uh, listen to the title. Eleven seventy seven BC. The collapse of the Bronze Age. Okay. Now, in like in fifteen BC is talking a little bit about Moses. It is a secular book, but it has helped me to follow the Bible. It's interesting, it's a really interesting book.
0: I think you kind of hit on a point there in that a lot of what's hard about the Old Testament is a lot of times we don't know the history, we don't know the context, and because, and because it's not necessarily in a linear chronological order, um, you know, you, it's hard to understand um, Habakkuk if you don't know about the Babylonian threat. It's hard to understand uh, Zephaniah or Haggai or Malachi if you don't understand that we're in the second Second Temple period post-exile. So, I think that um, there's a book called God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. Uh, it's 100 pages long, and it, go, it basically tells the story in a linear fashion. It's very helpful to help people get a greater context for it. Yeah? I
1: have a good question. This um, yes it is primarily about the Hittites, the Hexos, the Assyrians, and another Oh, the Egyptians. Yeah, those older. And I still don't know what exactly the Sea People were. And I'm not talking about the Phoenicians or the or other ones. We don't know who the sea people were. Have oh. you
0: ever it. heard of sea people? Don't know, don't know the sea people. I've been called the big sea at times, but I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe my family is the sea people.
1: No, I, I don't know. No, just, no okay. one knows huh. exactly. But because
0: this is way back 2500 BC. Okay. That far back, and that is long before Moses, Abraham, so. Got it. Got it. Um. Well, so Sorry. Did you have anything else to add there? No. The, okay. So, so the basis when we're talking about Jesus in the Old Testament, the basis for that, you know, um, we could think, oh, people are just trying to dig things up. But the basis for Jesus in the Old Testament is really found in the New Testament. Um, you know, we can look at all kinds of, of allusions and references, uh, allusions and references uh, of the Old Testament in the New Testament, but we can go even more explicit than that. I see here in your, your little worksheet, um, Luke 24, this is after the resurrection. Um, they're on the road, and Jesus says to the disciples, he says, "Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the whole Old Testament. Um, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself. Um, so Jesus Himself went back with the disciples and identified, "This is Me." Like this is this is this is where I am being proclaimed, prophesied, or spoken of in the Old Testament. So we're not just kind of you know pull, pulling this out of nowhere. Jesus Himself did Christological hermeneutics of the Old Testament. Um, And then secondly, too, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, um, Paul is explaining how some of the events in the Old Testament, how they connect to Jesus. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. This is the the cloud that followed them when they were in the wilderness. And all passed through the sea, talking about the Exodus, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in, in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. Um, manna coming from heaven, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So this is, uh, this is we'll talk about this in a second, but this is Paul doing what you call typology. Uh, this is Paul identifying something in the Old Testament that concretely represented uh, and prepared us for Jesus coming forward. Um, so just to, to create a basis here for... Um, why it is that we we with confidence can say that Jesus actually is in the Old Testament. So, uh, before we get into actual text, there are two types of Old Testament passages that are about Jesus. Um, one, you have Messianic texts. These are prophecies in the Old Testament that are explicitly talking about the Messiah to come. Um, they're predictive in nature. Um, and so, we'll, we'll look at some of those, but uh well, we'll look at those in a second. So anyhow, so again, these are... these. There's not... They, they are very much uh, in historical terms making a prediction that a Messiah will come and they're giving information about that Messiah. Then you have a second type of uh, of text that's Christological. And that type of text is what we call a typological text or a type for typology. And this is a text that prepares the way for Jesus. Uh, so if we're talking about Mephibosheth's kindness to... Uh, Sorry, King David's kindness to Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9. That is not explicitly the Messiah that we're talking about there. But the way that David is operating, and showing kindness to an enemy, inviting an enemy to his table and restoring all of the land, a bunch of land to that enemy. That is is typological and that it's preparing the way for what Jesus will do. It's creating a concept or a schema for what the Messiah will look like um and uh and and one thing about that when we're talking about a typological text it is not conceptual it's concrete um and uh and so uh yeah so that keeps us from from being you know looking at uh, a couple of lines from the psalms that are talking about God my deliverer and saying oh that's a type well not really, that's more, of, that's more of a theological text that talks about things that relate to what Jesus did, but a type is actually something concrete, a concrete story, concrete person, concrete event that prepares the way for Jesus. And so what we'll do now is Jack is going to take us through um, uh, on your sheet here, several texts, both Messianic texts and typological texts.
2: Okay, so we'll start with Messianic, and this again is text talking to... Sp- Explicitly about Jesus and when Jesus comes. So the first one on your sheet, um, we'll look at Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. And I'll just read it real fast. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan Galilee of the nations. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we can look at this text and try to find parts that are explicitly talking about Jesus. So to me, at least, if you look at verse six, that's uh, that's the most obvious. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is talking about Jesus, obviously, gospel. Um, We can also see parts about, if you look at verse 4 and verse 5, the yoke of his burden, just suffering, the suffering that the Messiah will have to bear for our sins. Um, Also, we can look to verse 7, and of the increase of his government and the peace there'll be no end if you remember in the gospel a lot of the jews thought the messiah would bring out a government um libertation they'd be free from rome and if we look here though it's talking about jesus does not do that but he, give, he expands his kingdom as in the kingdom of heaven and is in the peace there will be no end. So this is talking about the kingdom of heaven will be greatly increased when Jesus comes and um, preaches the gospel to many, not just Israel. Also, in, um, we see wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. This is obviously not talking about a man that's going to do this. Everlasting father, mighty God, this is talking about Um, A God yet it also talks about things that a man would do um, like suffering you know God does not suffer um, or God does suffer but he could only suffer if he was in if he was Jesus Um, do you have anything else
0: yeah yeah, that's really good
2: okay Um, we look at the next one and I'll read it and then um, we'll try to do it together this time Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After sixty two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set an abomination that causes desolation until the end is decreed, is poured out on him. So where in this text could we see explicit terms or references to Jesus Yeah, that's good. Yeah, anointed one. So it's talking about um, a person or being, which is Jesus.
0: And then that's, you know, Messiah literally translated as anointed one. Um, And so in in Isaiah, too, when it talked about how he will sit on David's throne, it's talking about a king. And so it's very clear that when we're talking about messianic texts, we're talking about things that are discussion of a a future king. Sorry. Can
1: you...
3: Explain
2: to me sevens. The sevens is, we're not going to go into, that's a cool apologetic thing. Like, you can actually look stuff online about it. But it's basically um, a prediction and um, with, like, you know, different weeks and stuff. And I think they end up coming all true, but it's it's kind of tricky to deal with. Yeah, it.
0: it's, a, it's a, a seven is a, um, uh, Jews would keep up with... Um, Seven-year periods, and they would call that—that was—they would use the term week for seven-year periods. So, like Jack said, um, there is a prediction here of when uh, of a period of time that will elapse between um, the order to rebuild the temple, because the context of Daniel, the temple has been destroyed, and this is uh, the temple has not been rebuilt yet. But anyhow, the time that will elapse between the order to rebuild the temple and the time that the Messiah will be cut off, which we would interpret as Jesus um, being uh, crucified. And dying, and so, um, so yeah, so we I and mean we could get into all the numbers of it, but it's a it's a pretty spectacular, uh, a pretty spectacular apologetic, like Black Jack said, as far as the time that elapsed in order to rebuild the temple to when that Messiah will be cut off. But to, to reissue your question, any, any other any other details in the text about um, that kind of point to or, or or messianic accomplishments of Jesus or messianic characteristics?
1: The anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing.
2: Yeah, talking about obviously crucifixion, suffering that Jesus has to deal with.
1: What is the
3: abomination that causes destruction? Desolation?
2: Okay, um, I thought that because before that it says at the temple, I thought that that might mean when Jesus is crucified and the curtain in the temple rips and uh, that's what I thought that could mean but I'm not sure. It depends on your
0: eschatological position. Um, some would some would uh, refer would point to the destruction of the, the second temple by the Romans at the end of the first century. Some would come up with that. Um, uh, there others would um, have different interpretations. I think no, very hard. Uh, <laughs> it's it's just a really, really difficult text. What
3: about in the middle of the seventh
2: and obviously putting it into sacrifice and offering, something Jesus did. And yeah, that's a cool apologetics thing um, to do the math with it. Yeah,
0: there's
2: easy. you um, did, did, did y'all see any other ones? Okay. 27 says
0: he'll confirm a covenant with me uh, right. for, for 1-7. So, you know, this would reference a new covenant, and also with many, that would be just beyond the people of Israel, but with all the nations. All right. Good job.
2: Okay, so now we'll look at Psalm 22, which we don't have on the sheet, but you can look in your Bible. I'll let get there. This is a longer text, so I'm not going to read all of it out loud. I'm going to jump around with some key verses. And if y'all would maybe skim it, if you already know the text, also um, be looking for other messianic verses. So I think right off the bat, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? obviously talking about Jesus on the cross um, praying we can also see my favorite one is verse 18 they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing this was a tradition that Roman soldiers would do after they executed or crucified someone they would take their the possessions they had on them and cast lots or gamble for whoever got this Uh, This is also a cool project saying because we don't know of any other um, empire or like warriors that would have this as a tradition. (laughs) Certainly none that Israel encountered at the time that this was written. So, um, you know, in the future that happened. Um, Do you all see any Messianic text?
0: To kind of to further buttress your point there about the kind of. Room in, um, the, well, in, in verse 16 it says, "Dogs have surrounded me; a band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet." Uh, crucifixion had not been invented at this point. It's not for probably uh, 800 years that crucifixion will be invented. And so, when you think about, you know, this detail of my, my hands, my hands and my feet have been pierced. You know, in a, in a text, it's clearly about someone being tortured and executed. Um, that's that's a quite a coincidence. Quite a coincidence. And and one thing too that some people would say, oh well, maybe maybe people came in and added this text along the way. And, and well, you know, in the second century, you have the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And um, and 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 all you know, all of this, what we have here within the Masoretic Hebrew text, is consistent with what's in the Greek text. So it kind of uh, validates for us that there was no redaction, there was no editing or change of what's in here. David. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is one of David. And I
1: think verses seven and eight definitely mirror yeah. the um, story of what happened when Jesus was
2: on the cross
1: and he was being mocked. Mm-hmm. He, he trusts in the Lord, let the Lord rescue him if he died.
2: Yeah, taunting him. Also, the verse above that, 6, um, scored by men and despised by the people. Um, this is good, you know, also that happened in Jesus. And also, if you think the time where this was written stuff is like, we can see it preparing the way for Jesus. Like, this is what our Messiah is is going to have to go through. Um, We're not going to just adore him. He's going to be despised and treated terribly.
0: on the sunny side, right? (laughs)
1: Um,
2: Any others? Okay. Do you have anything?
0: Before we move on to typological text, I would just say if if this is something you've not studied before, messianic prophecies, um, it's something that will really encourage your faith in in Christ and, and your confidence in God's promises to see. It's one of the unique things about Christianity is that over the course of thousands of years, um, there were these predictions that a Messiah would come in great detail and in um, and just unignorable, undeniable ways. Jesus fulfills you know, all of them. It's, uh, it's amazing. So, that's just if, if messianic prophecies aren't something you've been into before, I'd encourage you to look into it. If nothing else, it's just really cool.
2: Okay, so now we're going to go to typological texts. And this is text where it doesn't talk about a coming Messiah, but we just see leaders in the Old Testament do kind of godlike things. And it's kind of preparing us for what Jesus is going to be like and what the Messiah, how we can expect our relationship with God. So we'll start with Exodus 14. You can turn there in the Bible if you want. We're not going to read all of Exodus 14. Um, Just to remind everyone, Jews are leaving Egypt. They're set free. And the Pharaoh changes his mind and starts going after them. So here they are by the Red Sea, slaves, totally, totally helpless, no weapons, and they have to fight the entire Egyptian army. They're trapped. They, women and children, tired. Um, they, cannot, they cannot save themselves. So they have to turn to God and um, Moses, a, a leader, to an outside source to save them. And so then Moses parts the Red Sea. They're able to get through it crushes the Egyptian army when they try to walk through it. So I'll just read verse 10 through 14, because I think it kind of sets the tone a little bit. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You will need only to be still. So we can see how like Moses, we see through Moses how Jesus is or the Messiah is going to be. Slavery can, you can look at it as sin. So like we're all trapped by sin and we need and we're totally helpless with that. We cannot escape it. We need a Messiah or a Savior to break us from our bondage and take us across the sea we're totally helpless without God and we need God to save us
3: so I think it's interesting too that the Egyptians obviously were not even seeking to be saved they weren't even like God save us or Moses asked God to save us it was like why didn't you? like why did not we just go back why don't we why didn't we stay there um, and just obviously how that used to picture us, too, that we're not always (laughs) seeking to be saved through Christ, but that he still pursued us and saved us in spite of that.
2: Wow, that's good. Um, Yeah, so do any of y'all see any other, I guess, character traits in Moses or in the story that would point or get the world ready for Jesus?
1: I love, and I like hearing your interpretation of it, because I always just focus on that one part, basically when I'm trying to take over and do something, I'm reminded that God's doing it for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I like how you're talking about it, Jack. It's a bigger picture, not just my more about But,
2: yeah, it. it can also show us our relationship within the gospel, not just um, Jesus, that We ought to trust in the Lord and need only to be still. Yeah,
1: this seems to be talking about faith.
3: You know, it it strikes me the uh, just the parallel. Uh, They've been redeemed. God has brought them out of Israel, and now they're at the edge of the Red Sea. It looks like they're in trouble. And He says, "Fear not." And uh, the disciples are up in the upper room. Jesus has been killed, crucified. Behind shut doors because they're fearful when Jesus comes. In. So they've already been provided for. Them. The
1: provision already there, but they were still so fearful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am struck by the provision for salvation is not probably what they're expecting, just like ours was. Oh, wow,
0: well, that's really uh, good. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's crazy to think that our salvation is actually more miraculous <laughs> than, what, than what happens here in the text. Again, to like bring it within the terms of, of, of typology, Moses Moses is a concrete figure. This is a concrete event in history that we can you know tangibly see, and it, like Jack has said, is pr- it's preparing the way for the work of Jesus and the faith that, that we're called to for our for our own rescue out of slavery.
2: It's really good. Um, we'll move on now to Genesis twenty-two with Abraham and Isaac. So here,
0: this is, this is on page uh, 31. 31, if you've got these blue Bibles.
2: So this is Abraham being tested. God asked for his firstborn to, for Abraham to sacrifice his firstborn to him, but then. You know the story right before that happens. God says, wait, do not lay a hand on the boy. And then he provides Abraham with a ram or a lamb or uh, a substitution for the sacrifice. So, again, I'll read a little bit. This is right when God told Abraham to stop. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its thorn caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So we can see how this whole situation kind of points to Jesus. Um, I think the most, I think the, yeah, i say the most obvious part is the Lamb take is God providing a substitute for the sacrifice where Abraham has to give up his firstborn son, and instead, God says, No, take this, what I give you, and this will this is how you'll be redeemed is by um, slaughtering the ram. So, to me, that's the biggest characteristic. Um, Do any of y'all see any other typological? messages within this? Well, the ram is
3: a substitute for us, mm-hmm. which is obviously you know, that's a substitutionary atonement, which we see Christ for us. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is it a fair statement to say if this was 1 BC and we were sitting in a Bible study going through this information that we really wouldn't have... It, whether you're talking about typological or you're talking about even the messianic, this information is given to us in this age. Not really to, I just don't see how they could have caught most of this. Uh, it, it would have gone right over their heads. Yeah. You know, even the crucifixion part, I mean, they, at that point they didn't have a clue. Totally. So it, it it's all to us. Rather than to the now, maybe, obviously they would pick up on some of the prophets' uh, statements. But as yeah. a general rule, okay, I mean, yeah, you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And even
0: us. and even like biblical scholars of like Old Testament prophets who were delivering this, you know, some people say, did they know exactly what what they were predicting, or did they know nothing what they were predicting? And um, and what scholars say is it's probably a little bit of both. Like they had, there was some they had some vague idea that this may be out there. That they, they definitely knew that a king was coming, um, but we know you know from looking at the disciples, they they as far as that king being a substitution, you know a substitutionary offering for the sins of the world, they did, they totally didn't get it. Um, and you know Jesus has to, Jesus has to explain it to them post resurrection. Until the cross and the resurrection and you know the illumination by the Holy Spirit, they still don't really get it. Yeah. But we see we see when you read Acts how it all kind of comes together yeah. because you see the, the the you know the sermons in Acts how they're citing the Old Testament and I can think of um, Acts four and Acts seven in particular where they're going through different things in, in redemptive history to, and, and they're and they're connecting it all to Jesus. But no, you're absolutely right.
3: I, sometimes I wonder it would have been nice when John send his disciples to Jesus and asked either one, if he wouldn't have said, did you read Daniel that <laughs> 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 That's not exactly the way I've got a question for you, you know, because it begs the question. It seems like Paul had perfect knowledge and possibly Peter. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think they were given perfect knowledge through the
0: Spirit? When you say perfect knowledge, I mean, what do you... Of
3: ...context of the substitutionary
0: atonement and all
3: the things
0: that represent sort of the messianic message and the typological message. Yeah. It seems like they had yeah. perfect knowledge, not human knowledge. Definitely, definitely. I mean, and if you believe that, you know, the scriptures are inspired, and that means they're, you know, breathed by God. So, uh, and if you believe that, you know, the Bible is the, the full, every word is the full word of God, then, then yeah, absolutely. They, by the Holy Spirit, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have perfect knowledge.
3: Paul writes in Romans 15, 4, you know, New Testament. I mean, he tried, didn't know he wasn't Yeah. But he says this: he says, for everything
1: that was written in the past, so he's referring to the prophets, he's referring to the Old Testament, mm-hmm. was written to teach us, so that through the endurance and the ministry, we have hope. So he's, he's pointing back to the Old Testament, if you
3: as the thing that unfolds the mystery of the gospel. That's great. I think that Steve's point about uh, the knowledge, even when, when uh, Peter said, when Jesus asked him, who has say that I am? And he says, who do you say that I am? Peter, says, you are Christ. Uh, the, not all the account. The account of Matthew said, blessed are you, son of our young, flesh and blood I not revealed to you, but my father who is in heaven.
1: Hmm. So. Mm.
3: I'm kind of that maybe, maybe this is the first place in the Bible where we understand that sacrifices always involve
0: blood. Hmm. Well, you actually you can actually even go back to Genesis, the end of Genesis three, um, because in the garden it talks about at the very end, uh, right before Adam and Eve are dismissed from the garden, how they're clothed um, with an animal skin, and so it doesn't say it explicitly, um, but Implicitly, you know that an animal had to be killed for their shame to be covered, um, for that skin to be produced. So, implicitly, you could say Genesis 3, but um, this is uh, this is one of the definitely the one of the most explicit early in the Bible.
2: Yeah. Do you do the last one? Yeah. This uh,
0: one's this one. I like this one because this one's a little more obscure. It's not a story that everyone remembers. The first two are kind of everyone, m- most people who. have Great up in a church or familiar with Exodus 14 and 22. This one's a little more digging deep.
2: Digging yeah, deep. I'll say before this, um, again, that like people didn't read this before Jesus and think that this is necessarily pointing to the Messiah. But I will say these texts show God's character and what God's like and how their relationship is with God. So in that way, it prepares them for the Messiah to maybe get an idea of what God would be like when he he was here um, so this we have King Solomon and he's praying for his people he's praying for Israel and um, I'll just read a little bit of that oh I'm sorry um
0: this is on page five. Um... 535
2: in the the blue Bible. It's in your chair. Okay. So then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven and said, "O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or above on earth below. You will keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue to wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father, with your mouth. You have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it today. Now, Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, the promises you have made him. When you said you shall never fail to have a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me as you have done. And now, O God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David, my father, come true. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built... You yet give attention to your servant's prayer and plea for mercy, O oh Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple night and day, this place of which you said, My name shall be there, so that you will hear the prayer your servants praise towards this place. Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear the heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. So this, we have a king, King Solomon, praying for his people and also praising the Lord. But I'd say this is in the manner that Jesus constantly prays for us. And for our sins, and he just, when he was here and before and after, Jesus is always constantly praying for us and wants the best for us. So I'd say that could be a typological text. It's like a characteristic that Solomon has that the King of all kings has also. Um,
0: As you go through this text, he, he, Solomon goes into all kinds of detail of different scenarios. When your people. Um, when there's famine, Lord, we pray that you'd provide for them. And when your people uh, mess up in this way, Lord, we provide them. When there's a, a foreigner that does not belong to Israel, Lord, have, have mercy on him in this way. And um, and so just to think, like, when we pray, you know, Christ is our mediator. Solomon is functioning like a mediator between, um, between all of God's people, Israel, and God himself. And so... Um, uh, t- 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 part of why I love this text so much is because it uh, it gives to think that Jesus is interceding on our behalf right now in such a concrete way when Cameron uh, you know uh, forgets uh, loses his temper this afternoon Lord have mercy on him when Cameron loses his uh, his you know phone uh, five hours from now I'll help him find it and, you know basically uh, anyhow um I think we probably need to wrap up as a time.
2: Okay. Yeah, so I hope that we fulfilled all our purposes here today. Um, I hope that you're a little more excited or just as excited about the Old Testament. I hope that it reiterated the gospel and also you know, the apologetic stuff gave you a little more confidence in your faith. Gonna pray for us. Sure. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity for us to gather together and study your word. Be with us for the week to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.